that particular song has all the good doctrine in it. In the beginning, the father elected, the son became a curse on a tree. That's exactly what the gospel is about, why God has preserved his word and why he, preachers are supposed to preach to you how God saves a sinner. It's God's plan from eternity how sinners would be saved, how the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, would be your substitute. And that's what's important. I know people, other churches, denominations, preachers, put stress on you coming to church, put stress on you joining and getting involved. Well, I want to tell you, you got to get involved, all right, but you got to get involved with the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't do you any good to get involved with me or the church or anybody else. You've got to get serious about your own soul. And that's what we preach about. I guess that's why I got so many empty seats, too. <laughs> People don't like to hear the truth. But, you know, they're all partakers of the same life and the same future. And uh, one day, it's all going to be over. So let's turn now to First Peter. It's way in the back of the Bible. First Peter, the fourth chapter. And I just want to read you verse uh, 17, 18. Might as well do 19 to the end of the chapter. 17 through 19. Fourth chapter of 1 Peter. It says, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit their keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank thee this morning again as we thank thee continually for being such a wonderful God to us and providing us a substitute redeemer in giving us life and giving us a good home and a transportation and clothes to wear and food to eat, things that we rarely ever thank thee for when we should be thanking thee all the time. But this morning we ask you to bless our message, that the things read in thy word and the things said will go home to the hearts of everyone that listens this day and who will listen on tape. We only ask that thy will be done and that sinners will either be awakened or saved. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Talking about judgment beginning at the house of God. In religion as well as at a horse race, you bet on a sure thing, you think. Our Lord Jesus is such a sure thing that he's called a surety. The word sure is right there in his name. He's a surety. Now, to be frank with you, betting entails gambling. In fact, there are no sure things in life, so life itself is a gamble. People are prone to bet a little to get a lot. Of course, you're very familiar with the lottery. We have the lottery going on in our state, and people take a chance for a dollar to make a million or several million. 
Everybody thinks this. Maybe I'll get lucky. It's only a couple of dollars a week. Well, their chances, the chances are that they'll spend that couple of dollars a week for the rest of their lives and never win. I've seen the sure thing in the Kentucky Derby get beat. Oh, all they talked about was one horse all the year. This horse is going to do it. And he gets in a race and he gets beat. Sure thing. Even after the Persian Gulf War that we had a few years back, President Bush was a sure thing for re-election. But with time and providence, it wasn't so sure. The wonderful guy we have in there now beat him. Boy, I wonder how that came about. I really do. I haven't figured that one out yet. Well, this is all in the world and the world system. This is the world you and I live in, was born in, and will die in. And the being born in and living in is okay. But there's something alarming, terrifying about this thing of dying. It's sad. It's disturbing. It's eventual. It's known as the end. It's expected somewhere down the line, way down the line, even to the elderly. Doctors nor lawyers can't stop it. And people prefer to remain ignorant of death, even though God has given us a book and preserved the book for multiples of centuries that tells you what to expect at death. What are we to expect? Look at Hebrews 9.27. Hebrews 9.27, just back a few pages from 1 Peter. Nine twenty-seven. It says, As it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Uh-oh. How many people know that? How many people ever give that a thought? People think when you die, it's over, it's done, it's finished. Everybody says in the funeral parlor, Oh, they're better off. No matter how sick or how they've been tormented with disease. As soon as they die, they're better off. That's not what the Bible teaches, is it? What did you just read? After this, the judgment. It's either do you know Christ or don't you know him? Have you been a Christian or haven't you been a Christian? Regardless if you're a Buddhist, a Mohammedist, or whatever other religion in the world, judgment. Unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only God living. Well... People say, judgment, what's that? If my good works and intentions outweigh the few little mistakes I've made in life, I'll probably make it. I really believe that you can say that I've been a good person. No, that's not judgment. You don't judge yourself. You'll be judged by God's laws which have no loopholes. There's no squeezing out. They're very sure and just. You may say, I don't believe that. Quit kidding yourself. Just quit breathing and you'll be there. I'll take my chances. Now, I've heard that from ones in my own family. I'll take my chances. No, you're not taking any chances at all. The sure thing 
is you're going to die and be judged by God who has given all judgment to the same person you refuse to learn about, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, people think that God, the Father's the judge. I did for years. The Bible don't teach that. Look at John 5, verse 22. Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 5, 22, and then also verse 27. For the Father judgeth no man. Is that clear? Sixth grade English. The Father judgeth no man. But hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So who is the judge? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, judges usually just hand down the sentence, but they have got nothing to do with the punishment. But it's not like that with our Lord Jesus Christ, because look at verse 27. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So you get sentenced by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you get cast into the lake of fire by the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, other parts of the scriptures tell us his angels work with him. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? So if dying is a sure thing, there is something you have got to be sure about while you are living, and that is how do I face this judgment that follows my death? Well, all the answers are in God's book called the Bible. So for starters, if you ignore the book half-heartedly read it, don't believe all of it, and use some modern version other than the King James, the judge is going to get you. He's going to righteously, justly, and surely sentence you to a burning hell, and that forever. You don't think so? Well, look at Revelation 20, verse 10. Revelation 20 and verse 10. This is all future. This part of the Bible is future, but we're reading what's going to happen. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the beast and the false prophet are not there yet. They are coming. It's during the time of the great tribulation upon earth. That's when the beast and the false prophet will have much power and cause much devastation upon this earth. But the idea is here, I want you to know they shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. What will be his reason for doing such an awful thing to you? In other words, why would God send someone to the lake of fire forever and ever? I'll show you in a couple simple reasons in a little book of the Second Thessalonians. Turn to Second Thessalonians just for a moment. First chapter of Second Thessalonians, verse eight. In flaming fire, 
taking vengeance on them that know not God. That's one, one group. Those that don't care anything about religion call themselves atheists and uh, go about their own types of religions throughout the world that know not God. And then here comes the religious guys. And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two categories of people. Isn't that interesting? That's the reason. That they don't know God, and the other one is that they don't obey the gospel. Now go to the second chapter of this same book and look at verses 10 through 12. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because, here's the reason, they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth. Now that's the reason why God cast people into the lake of fire. Can you imagine yourself being damned forever, cast into the lake of fire that originally was meant for Satan and his angels? All because you didn't receive the love of the truth. Didn't say for being a murderer, for being an adulteress or an adulterer. It says for not believing the truth. You didn't believe the Bible. You didn't think that people had to be saved. You didn't believe there was a hell. You didn't believe, and you did believe that God was love. And in the end, he'd be nice to all of his peoples. You see, that's not the truth. You love a lie, you've lived under the influence of a lie. That God loves everybody. No, the Bible never teaches that. And then someone comes along and gives hope to your lie and says you can burn for a few thousand years in a place called purgatory. Give or take a thousand years, it doesn't make any difference. It depends on how bad you are. That's a lie. They say you can purge your sins by burning and then the judge will suspend your sentence. That's a bigger lie. My friends, you need to know the truth. And God has to give you a love of the truth. That means that Christ and his word come first in your life and affections. If the Lord Jesus Christ is the number one in your life, you're a loser. Look at Matthew 10, verse 38. Matthew, first book in the New Testament. Matthew 10, verse 38 and 39. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Might be confusing to some people, but let me tell you, while we're here, I want to show you something that you've never seen on a bumper sticker. Start with verse 34. Our Lord Jesus Christ is preaching here now. Look at this one. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. That's one bumper sticker you have never seen. Never. Nobody talks about the Lord Jesus Christ as being just and holy, only that he's all love and forgiving and tender and kind. He says, I came not to send peace but a sword, for I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I often wonder where that started. He must have been there. 
and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. <laughs> That's true. Just become a Christian and you'll find out in a hurry. All that's true. All right. When you love someone, you are devoted to them. They are on your mind. You continually want to please them, give gifts to them, be with them. And the same applies to the love of the truth. The truth personified is Christ. He says, I am the truth. Look at John, John 14, 6. John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, that's to Thomas, who's trying to say, I don't know where you're going, all that. So the Lord just says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Just believing on him, in him, gives you a sureness in life and in the judgment. Now, let me show you a little bit about why everybody is involved in a judgment. Turn to John 3, 18. Well, first of all, John 3, 16. Let's go to John 3, 16. Everybody knows John 3, 16. Everybody should. This is the most frequently quoted scripture in the world. If you watch the uh, Super Bowl games or playoff games or any football games all through the year, somebody in the audience is going to throw up a sign that the TV camera catches saying John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's absolutely a marvelous, wonderful, beautiful scripture. And it's full of truth. What are some of the truths that we find in this verse 16? Well, we find that God loved the world. But what world? Everybody in the world? Can't possibly be everybody in the world. The Apostle John wrote in his book over there in 1 John, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Our Lord Jesus Christ in John 17, when he prayed, he says, I pray not for the world, but for them that thou hast given me. So this world that God loves is people all over the world that he has chosen to salvation. And he gave his only begotten son for them. He did that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. you understand what else that means? It means that everybody that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is certainly going to perish. They will perish. And that's what this judgment is all about. Now, if you look at verse 18, right underneath there, says, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. What'd they do? They didn't do anything. They just don't believe. God says they're condemned. And so you see why everybody on the face of this earth is headed for hell. They're condemned already. Kids, older people, black, yellow, white, no matter what color, what language, if they don't know Christ, they're condemned. 
because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's how important God's Son is to you and me. Now, just believing on him gives you a sureness in life and in the judgment to come. Now, this morning as I was reading in our daily readings, this is called Ears from Harvested Sheaves, and I thought it would just fit into this message just perfect. So I'm going to read it to you. It's a scripture taken from Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 13. It says, These all died in faith. When death came, it did not rob them of their faith. They held with their believing hand in death every truth which they had held with their believing hand in life. It is in death that the gospel is such a blessing when held by a believing hand. What should we do upon a dying bed with all of our sins staring us in the face and all their awful magnitude, accused by Satan, condemned by conscience, terrified by a holy law and frowned upon by an indignant God? <clears throat> what must be our end upon the bed of death if we had nothing to look to <coughs> Excuse me, but a God who is a consuming fire? With nothing but the bitter recollection of past sins to agonize the mind and distress the conscience. Oh, if ever faith is needed, it will be needed then. If ever the gospel embraced, embraced then. If ever Christ looked to, looked to then. If ever laid hold of by the hand of faith, laid hold of then. Now if you know what faith is, and your faith has embraced the Son of God, and love has worked by that faith, and Christ in that faith has made himself precious, that faith will never give up the ghost in a dying hour. False faith, faith will then expire. But the faith of God's elect will not leave you in the hour of death, but support you as you pass through the dark valley and land you safe on that happy shore where faith has turned into sight, hope into enjoyment, and love abides in its fullest manifestation. These all died in faith, and yet not receiving the promises. Now here's the good news of the gospel or the word of truth. The judge is also the surety of those who trust in his substitutionary sacrifice. He paid our sin debt. Look at 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24 Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live, un should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. It matters not how guilty you are if you know the judge as your surety, which means the judge has taken your place. 
paid what you owed, suffered what you were to suffer, satisfied justice which fulfilled the law in your place. And him being in your place can then pronounce you righteous and free. It's called imputation. Did you ever hear of such a thing in life? No, that don't take place in our life. This is spiritual happenings. What I'm talking about, it doesn't take place in our life, is in the life around us, the political, the educational, the religious life. This is God's plan. Man could never come up with something so outrageous as somebody else taking your place in judgment. God and man do not think alike. Look at Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, that's the wonder of the gospel, what makes it so unique, so wonderful, so fitting for a sinner. God himself is our surety. He stands in our place to pay and did pay the price of redemption, which was his blood and life. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now there you see the double imputation. Our sins are imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, but he voluntarily took the punishment of our sin upon him. And then his righteousness is made our righteousness by imputation. When a believer believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that he did perfectly is accounted to your account. God sees you as an absolutely perfect, righteous person, even though you know all about you, other people know all about you, you're absolutely not perfect in your own eyes or other people's eyes, but in God's eyes you are because you believe in his son. Boy, is that a good deal. You can't beat that. Look at verse, and same chapter, but uh, chapter 4 and verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Now sometimes a surety is sorry that he ever got involved and tries to get out of the deal. The Bible even warns you about being a surety. In other words, being a cosigner, God tells you, hey, don't do it. People that cosign usually get stuck. I've been stuck quite a few times. 
Let's see where that is. It's in Proverbs 6, verses 1 and 2. Proverbs 6, 1 and 2. You want to see where God tells you, don't do it. My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou sticken, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, and thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. In other words, he's saying, don't be a cosigner, okay? But Christ never repented of his suretyship or cosigning for you and me. Instead of it bothering or disgusting him, he delighted in it. Look at Psalm 40 and verse 8. Psalm 40 and verse 8. Psalm 40, verse 8. Okay, here's what it says. I delight to do thy will. O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. John 10, verses 17 and 18. John 10, 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I laid down my life, that I might take it again. And no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, this next scripture really shows you how our Lord Jesus Christ loved you and me. It's in Hebrews 12.2. Hebrews 12.2. It's absolutely amazing. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Wait, did I say for the joy? Joy of being tortured, humiliated, and put to death. Would that bring you joy? No, it wouldn't us. But it did for our Lord Jesus Christ because he did it for us who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Think about him. Oh, you might be suffering this thing or this disappointment or that thing or somebody let you down or somebody said something about you. All minor little things. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for believers. And then verse 11 in that same chapter is a super great verse because it says, No chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. We're going to get chastised in this life. God's not going to give any of his people a bed of roses to live on and great prosperity and everything going right. No. We're going to have crosses continually because that's what drives us to our knees and make us depend upon him. Well, among men, 
The surety usually signs for a debt that is being incurred or that will be incurred and that for a specific amount of money. The bank says we'll give you this loan if you have a co-signer. Well, Christ became surety or security for his people's debts before they ever made them. In fact, even before they were ever born, he bore the punishment due to their sins before their calling and conversion and all their iniquities afterward. Wow, you can't imagine that. But look at Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah 1.5, way over near the middle of the Bible. We're talking about God knowing all about you before you're born. He said to Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Well, in this day and time, that verse means an awful lot because it means no abortion. That means God knows you before you're even in the womb. He knows every individual. He knows every tiny infant that's been murdered by abortion. A sad country we live in. Sad, sad, sad. No morals at all. No care about anything. The only thing they care about is sex. The only thing. Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee. This is never... Oh, let's go to 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Our Lord forgiving the sinner. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. What's that big word propitiation mean? It means a sacrifice that God accepts. It's the acceptable sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one that God accepts his payment for sin. For our sins are not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What world? The world of God's people. This is never committed to the sinner apart from repentance and pardon. Nobody knows that they're one of God's chosen ones until they are given the gift of repentance and they know that their sins are forgiven. Now look at Acts 5.31. Acts 5.31. I don't give you any statements unless I show them to you in the scriptures. Acts 5.31 says, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. When our Lord was preaching, he said in Luke 13.3, this is an easy one to remember because he says it in Luke 13.3 and 13.5. 
I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And people say, oh, uh -huh. and then the Lord repeats the same thing again, two verses later. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. What's repentance? That's falling guilty before the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guilty. That's repentance. Not very many people ever get it. I remember even my own father who said uh, when he got old and he felt that he was about to die, he would confess all of his sins to the priest this one time, get it over with once, and he'd be ready to go. God don't give people repentance on any conditions like that. And when it finally happened to my father, while he's laying in a cancer hospital with his bones even breaking, he had bone marrow cancer, he smoked those two packs of camels every day, just miserably dying. Did he call for a priest? No, he didn't call for a priest. Did he call for a Bible? No. He didn't. What did he call for? He called for his cigarettes. If I can't have my cigarettes, I'd just soon die. No thought of repent, no thought of heaven, no thought of hell. Didn't care. God don't grant people repentance on dying beds. He did it a thief on the cross. One example. Don't take no time. My repentance is such a difficult thing to do. You better do it while you're young and while you have strength. Because when you're sick, you don't think of nothing but your sickness and your miserableness. You've got to be healthy to repent. People don't understand it. They don't care. Luke 18, verse 13. I'm going to show you how a guy repents. Luke 18, 13. Let's read, start with verse 9. It's a good story. Verse 9. Because he's talking about people which are self-righteous religious hypocrites. Verse 9 says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the high priest, all of them. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The publican is a tax gatherer, and the Pharisee is your, your priest, is your minister, is your pastor. He's the religious guy. He's supposed to be good. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Isn't that interesting? He prays with himself. He don't pray to God. He says, God, I thank thee. I'm not as the other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And he's just talking about himself. The poor publican. Ah, oh, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who did God hear? The publican. Why? Because he asked for mercy. Because he was so taken with his sin that he wouldn't even dare lift up his eyes. And when he smote upon his breast, it's because inside of that breast was that heart that's deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. He didn't even know if his prayer was true or not. But it was. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the only kind of sinner God saves. 
Well, we speak to you about how does God save a sinner? He saves sinners that comes to him guilty, pleading for mercy. The next verse says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. What's the most important thing in his whole life? To be justified, to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to know your sins are forgiven and that you will be with him when you quit breathing. And he invites anybody to come. No matter how bad, how good, how tall, how short, how old, how young you are, come to Christ. He invites you. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And he says, and if you come, I won't cast you out. I don't care how bad you've been, what you've done, how irreligious you've been, just come. Let's bow our heads. Father, we ask thy blessing upon our preaching this morning, upon the reading of thy word. And I will take these truths home to the hearts of everyone that hears because they're the most important words people can possibly hear in this life. We ask you to bless each one here, each family represented, and particularly those in the Tate families that love to hear this gospel. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You're all dismissed.